Good to see you all. Uh, welcome to those of you who are in this room and those in the fellowship hall and those at home. Grateful that we can all join together in this way. You can join me by opening your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We're nearing the end of our series in the book of Daniel, and it'd help if you have a copy of God's Word open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you in here, there's some under seats nearby. Last week, we saw the introduction to what really is the last vision of the book of Daniel. So we'll finish the series next week with the final part of this, but right now we're in the middle of this final vision. It began in chapter 10, and God sent an angel to Daniel to give him understanding about what would happen in the future to God's people. And when Daniel saw this angelic figure, if you're here last week, you remember he saw this a beautiful, vibrant, powerful image of this angelic figure. When people see angels in the Bible, they aren't, you know, little chubby babies with harps. They aren't like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, which I just saw for the first time a few days ago. I can't believe I'm, I waited my whole life until now to actually see that. Um, what a great movie. But um, I like Clarence. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but that's not the biblical vision of an angel. Every time a bell rings, an angel doesn't get his wings. As far as we know, angels don't need to earn their wings. And Clarence seems like a nice guy, but not the angelic figure that Daniel saw. This being is so glorious that Daniel passed out in fear. But the angel encouraged him, reassured him of what we saw last week. He said, You are loved. You don't need to be afraid. You're not alone. And Daniel was strengthened in order to hear the vision that we are now going to consider this morning. And why don't we pray together uh, before we move toward this text. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you for this particular vision that you gave to Daniel and had recorded for us and for our good. We believe that your word is true and it is profitable And uh, you reveal yourself here so that we might worship you and know you and have great confidence in you. So we pray that you would do whatever you need to do in our hearts and minds this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Daniel chapter 11, we hear this vision of the future that this angel gave to Daniel. God tells Daniel what will happen in the coming centuries after him. So this, this chapter really overviews various kings and conflicts. It's incredibly detailed. Uh, In fact, uh, one commentator wrote that this chapter really is for lectures, not sermons. So here we are. Actually, I disagree with that. There, There are a lot of details here that would be good for timelines and lectures, and that has their place, but this is God's Word for us. And as 2 Timothy 3 says, all God's, all Scripture is God's Word. It's God's, God's breathed Word, and it's profitable for helping us to grow. And so let's read this together. We won't read the entire chapter, uh, but we'll read a section from the middle of this, beginning in verse uh, 20, 20 to verse 35. So let's read this together before we consider it. Daniel 11, verse 20. After a number of kings rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall, then shall arise in his place, another king, one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Verse 21, in his place 
shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a strong people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. Verse 29, and at the, appointed, at the time appointed, he shall return, and this king shall come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and by flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Then it continues. Well, this is overviewing a lot of history, and we jump down in the middle of this. So for some of you who love history, this will be encouraging and exciting to you and intriguing. For those of you who don't, um, it's important that we recognize history is important, and we'll see that this morning. Um, and so if you're um, kids, if you're with us here and you're going to draw something or you have a paper and something to color with or draw with, I'd love to see what you end up drawing. So I encourage you to draw what you hear this morning. And what we're going to do is focus on the main themes here. And here's what we see. There's going to be centuries of conflict that will build up to a climactic persecution of God's people. But in the end, God will deliver and raise his people. So though hardship is coming, God is in control, and he'll deliver us in the end. And so the purpose of this chapter, the whole chapter in the part we just read, is to prepare God's people for conflict and hardship that's coming in the world, and will be directed toward them in many ways, and to give them hope in the coming resurrection. So really, as we step back and consider the message of this chapter, we're reminded that Jesus really gives two messages. One message is come to me and find rest, right? Come and rest in me. And the other message is go and suffer for me. And we need to embrace both of those messages. And this chapter focuses mainly on the latter. 
As we come and find rest in Jesus, we're also to go and suffer for Him and endure suffering uh, faithfully. And so this chapter mainly focuses on that. So here's what we see. Let's just answer two questions. What should we expect as God's people, and how do we endure? So what do we expect is the first question, and that's really what Daniel's wondering. He's seen several visions of the future by now, and he's confused and concerned about this. We saw last week that he was praying and fasting and seeking to understand. Likely part of that is to understand what these visions that he's received are all about, what is going to happen in the future. And now the angel is going to give him more details about what God's people can expect. And the short answer is they can expect more suffering for a long time. Now, before we look at the details, it may help us to remember the big picture we've seen in Daniel. The first vision we saw was in Daniel chapter 7, and it was this big picture overview of history. Daniel saw four beasts. Each represented four kingdoms, and the four kingdoms were the kingdom of Babylon, which is the one that Daniel had lived in during the time of the vision. Then the next kingdom, the next beast represented the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, where Daniel is living within at this time. The next kingdom after that is the kingdom of the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire. And then after those four kingdoms would come the kingdom of God. Son of man, Jesus, would come and bring God's kingdom. And we know that he has come. When he came, he proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand, and through his life and his death for our sins and his resurrection, he has established the kingdom, and he's reigning over all things right now. And we're waiting for him now to return and fully establish his kingdom. And so now in chapter 11, we see some of the history in more detail. So let's walk through this prophecy in three stages three phases. So phase one is the first 20 verses. This shows that Israel will be caught in the crossfire of other kingdoms. So we'll just walk through some of this together. We won't look at all the details. So verse two, you can look at it with me. The angel says to Daniel, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So Daniel has lived through the Babylonian Empire. He's now at the very beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire as Cyrus came and conquered Babylon. Some of the Israelites have gone home to Jerusalem. Daniel is still living in this area, now the Medo-Persian Empire. And the angel tells him that three more Persian kings will arise and then a fourth. And a fourth will pick a fight with the kingdom of Greece. So that last king is probably who we know from history, named Xerxes, whose name can also, it seems, be translated Ahasuerus. He's the king from the book of Esther. Uh, my family and I have been reading through the book of Esther in previous weeks. We took about a chapter a night. It's a really engaging story, and we get to know this king, um, this fourth king here. And King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, did attack Greece, and shortly afterward, the Greek empire rose to power. And we know who the great Greek king was who launched that kingdom um, into the world, and that was Alexander the Great, and he's referred to in verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. So Alexander the Great uh, conquered the Near East by the time he was 26. We've seen him before in this book, in chapter 8. But then he died from sickness when he was about 33 years old, and his kingdom was divided into four parts. 
Four of his generals took four parts of his kingdom, and it turned into four kingdoms of Greece, and so of the Greeks. And so verse 4 says, And as soon as he's arisen, as soon as Alexander the Great has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Referring to the fourfold division of his kingdom. And then these kingdoms would have conflicts with one another over the next generations. And you can read about it in history books, but here in verses 5 to 20, the focus is really on two of those kingdoms. The kings of the north and the kings of the south. They're mentioned over and over here. And there's a reason why the focus is on the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Because they actually referred to as north and south with reference to their relationship to Israel. So the land of Israel is caught in the middle. You have the kings of the north above them in Assyria, and you have the kings of the south below them in Egypt. And those kings and kingdoms are going to war against each other, and Israel's right in the middle of that. And so the kings of the north in Syria were called the Seleucids, and the kings of the south in Egypt were called the Ptolemies. And in verses 5 to 20, we hear about six wars over the course of two centuries. There's some alliances, some intermarrying, but largely conflicts, and Israel's caught in the crossfire. And so this whole section shows us really the futility of power shifts in the world. I mean, it's striking just reading through this section, and the kings of the north conquer the kings of the south, and the kings of the south conquer the north, and then they intermarry trying to have an alliance, and then that falls through, and then this king dies, and then this king reigns. That's what we see through history. Kings rise, and they fight, and they win, and they take plunder, and then they fall, and another king rises and takes plunder. Alliances form and fall apart. As one author put it, the fallen world is pursuing the wind and finds it elusive. So, just side note, this is a reminder for us to not be impressed by world powers that just happen to be in charge today. They rise and they fall, they come and they go. We happen to be living at this point in history and seeing the ones that are currently on the world stage now, and they'll fall. That's phase one. The suffering of God's people from the 6th to the 2nd century BC. And now phase two shows that their suffering will become intensified. And this is the section we read from verses 20 through 35. Up until this point in the chapter, the vision flies over a couple of centuries of conflict. Alexander the Great himself, who gets large sections in history books, just gets a verse. But now the narrative slows down and focuses on one ruler who doesn't get a lot of attention in history, but gets a lot of attention here. And he is called a contemptible person. And we know him as Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, We focused on him as well a few weeks ago because he was mentioned in chapter 8, and this is giving more detail. He reigned in the 2nd century B.C. So look at verses 21 and 22 with me. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, referring to Antiochus, Epiphanes, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. So this king, um, Antiochus IV, was awful. Um, the, it goes on to tell about what he did that we, that we, re- we read there. Uh, he was the Hitler of the ancient world. And in one terrible time of his persecution of the Jews, it begins in verse 29, it says this, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. So he was from the north. He goes to the south to attack 
but it says it shall not be this time as it won before. He had victory before. It's not going to work out for him the second time. And so he's moving to attack the south, Egypt. And so there's another conflict here between these nations, north and south of Israel. But this time the fight's different. Continue on in verse 30. Because for the ships of Ketim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. So this refers to the Romans who did come to attack Antiochus IV as he was going down to attack Egypt. And he did get afraid, and he started to withdraw. And so he is angry, and he's enraged. And what land does he have to go through to get back to the north? Right? He has to go through Israel. And he takes out his anger on them. And he leads destruction, leaves destruction in his way. So keep reading in verse 30. And he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. So that the people of God here, Israel, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, the sacrifices. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So he'll seduce with flattery those who are willing to forsake God in the covenant and join with him. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So what we learn, we learn more about what happened in other historical records. We won't go into it here. But in short, Antiochus hated the Jewish people. He wanted them to be Hellenized or to become more Greek in their culture and religion. And they resisted. He killed tens of thousands of them in horrible ways. Uh, he, he said, if, if you are caught with a copy of the Scriptures, you are killed. If you circumcise your child, right, giving them the mark of the covenant, you're killed. If you observe the Sabbath day, you're killed. He went into the temple and set up an altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs in there. That's what's being referred to here, we saw a few weeks ago, this um, abomination that causes desolation, right? So this abomination in the, in the temple that caused it to be desolate. End sacrifices, idolatry and a pig, pig sacrificed in there. So that's phase two. Israel is to expect in the coming centuries, Daniel is told, not only this first phase of suffering as they're caught in the crossfires of other nations, but a period of intense suffering. In this period that's less than a decade long, Um, at the hands of Antiochus. And now there's a third phase of suffering. It's verses 36 to the end of the chapter. Verse 36 says this, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. done. And then the rest of the chapter describes more of this man's terrible works. Now, there's some debate about whom this king refers to. In some ways, it sounds like this is continuing to describe Antiochus IV, whom we've just read about. Uh, But in other ways, this sounds like it goes far beyond him. It seems like it's describing some future ruler that will be like him, but worse. So, it seems like this is more like an Antiochus 2.0 that's going to come sometime in the future. So I agree with those who say that this section shifts to speaking about another person. Now, 
really it doesn't make a difference because the point is, is the same either way. This is either referring to Antiochus, but in ways that are kind of exaggerated, larger than life, in order to, be, to show that Antiochus is a pattern of someone worse to come in a future kingdom, or this is just skipping right to that future kind of Antiochus 2.0 figure, and that figure is described in ways that sound just like Antiochus because they're very similar. Antiochus is a pattern. And so we see in the New Testament, this, is, this person's referred to as the Antichrist. The Apostle Paul spoke about someone who sounds a lot like this in 2 Thessalonians 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul said, for that day, this future coming day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what are Daniel and God's people to expect in these three phases? Well, they're to expect this long phase of conflict, and then an intense period of persecution with Antiochus, and then another Antiochus-like figure to come and persecute God's people again. So these three phases will lead to a final end that we'll look at in more detail next week. It's at the very beginning of chapter 12, and it ends with the promise of resurrection. The suffering will eventually lead to the dawning of God's kingdom, or the fully, full establishment of God's kingdom in a new creation where God's people are raised, actually all people are raised from the dead, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame. And God tells Daniel all of this ahead of time. So why? Why does Daniel need to know this? To be frightened by this reality that's already been bothering him and he's seeking to understand it. Then he receives this vision. Well, the reason is to prepare God's people for suffering. If they're going to expect their best life now, then they will be disillusioned when all of this happens century after century, right? If they think that going back to Babylon after this time in exile means the end of their suffering, then they're going to be very confused when it's not just a couple years or decades, but centuries until things turn. So this is to prepare them. And we now are still part of this ongoing story, this unfolding of history. We're still waiting for this Antiochus-like ruler to come. There have been iterations through history, and we're still waiting for this final one to come. And even now, through the ages, many have come like him because the pattern repeats itself, but there will be this man of lawlessness that Paul speaks about who will come. And life is already hard for many Christians around the world, suffering and intense persecution faced by brothers and sisters in many countries. I suspect it's likely that there are harder days ahead for Christians in the West and in our nation, and God does not want us to be surprised or disillusioned by this. He told Daniel to expect suffering, to prepare for it. So then that leads us to our second question, how then do we endure? How do we live through this hard life? God doesn't give Daniel or Israel any commands in this chapter. It's just a prophetic vision of the future, but the way that it foretells history and the way it portrays God's people at certain points here contain lessons for us. And so this vision really does help us prepare for whatever suffering may come for God's people. So here's four lessons that we gather from this chapter. First, this leads us to trust that God is in control of history. 
It's not spinning out of control, though it may feel that way. This chapter is predicting the future to Daniel. So God tells Daniel through this angel what is going to happen ahead of time. And so many of this prophecy, the prophecies of this chapter have already come to pass. That whole section from the beginning of the chapter through verse 20 in phase 1 and Antiochus the fourth, all of that has already been fulfilled and happened. You can, I can recommend some books if you're interested in studying that out. It's incredible. It's miraculous. The Lord predicted this ahead of time, and it has been fulfilled. And so we shouldn't be surprised by this if we believe that the God who made history is the God who rules history. He knows the end from the beginning, and he can tell the end from the beginning. Now, some people think that Daniel couldn't have written this in the 6th century B.C. because it speaks in such detail about what's to come after this. Um, But we believe in a God who certainly can tell the end from the beginning because he knows it. And it's not just that God is predicting the future here, though. Over and over in this chapter, we read that things will happen at the time appointed. It's a repeated phrase here. So as we read in Daniel chapter 2, God is the one who makes kings rise and he makes kings fall. As we read headlines, no matter living in this age or any past century of kings and leaders rising and falling, we're seeing the Lord's hand at work, making kings rise and fall for God's mysterious purposes, but we trust in him because he's in control. And so this teaches us to look at all the power struggles of our day and then look to God. God knows all of this ahead of time. He is sovereign over it. And so, you know, with Antiochus in that section that we looked at about him, it's not just an interesting, sad story in history. This is instructive so that when we see another Antiochus-like figure, we can say, we've seen this before, and God's people have endured this before, and there's hope after this because resurrection's coming. God's in charge. Second lesson, this leads us to embrace our part in the story. God is revealing history to Daniel as a story. He's showing how his people have a place in it. So you are a character in a story, and you have a part to play. He's saying to us, this is your story, and you have a role in this. So many of you have read or seen The Lord of the Rings. Uh, You may know that's one of my favorite uh, stories. Watched the movie probably 10 times before I actually read it and finally read it last year. Um, and loved reading it. And one of my favorite lines in this book, it's very memorable in the movie as well, um, reinforces this point. So in the, in the book, the moment comes a little earlier in the story. Gandalf is for the first time telling Frodo, who has this terrible mission ahead of him, Gandalf, this wise wizard, is telling Frodo that he is, like, life's going to get hard. Uh, hard times are coming, and it's going to be very difficult and there's terrible danger coming, and Frodo has not yet experienced it, but Gandalf decided it was time to speak, right, to tell uh, Frodo ahead of time what kind of hardship was coming, right, to prepare him for that, because Frodo needed to know, similar to what's going on in this chapter. Frodo doesn't like what he hears. He doesn't like that his life is going to be filled with hardship. He wants a life of ease in his home place called the Shire, and so Frodo said this, I wish it need not have happened in my time. You ever feel like that? Just look out at your life or what's going on around you in a, in a bigger picture and say, I just wish I didn't live at this time. Did this stuff need to happen when I live? And Gandalf says this, 
So do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. So that's what God is speaking to Daniel and everyone else who reads this in coming ages, including us. It was not for us to decide what time we would be born in. But it is for us to decide how, what we will do with it. And so for the last two lessons, uh, we learn from how God describes his people who do endure. What they do with the time that's given them. So the third lesson is this. Know your God. This is the heart of it all. This is how God's people are described here. Look at verse 32 with me. This is in the midst of the persecution of Antiochus in the century, second century BC. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So he's going to seduce with flattery those who will be willing to abandon God, be abandon God's word in ways and join with him. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I'm so grateful for that phrase, but the people who know their God, not but the strong and the powerful of the world, not but those who manage to be successful in their lives, not but those who are really good at being religious. No, it's those who know their God will stand firm. Those are the ones who endure. Those are the ones who don't compromise, but stand firm and take action. And it's not just those who know about God. It's not just those who teach people about God. It's those who know their God. So if you want to be prepared for suffering, if you want to be prepared to endure hardship that may come in your day, this is how to do it. If you want to stand firm and be courageous when the time comes, this is how you do it. You know your God. That makes the difference for whether you'll make it or not. Will you stay faithful in hard times? What about if Christian institutions are sued for holding to Christ's sexual ethic? What if you'll be misunderstood and called a bigot by people whose approval you long for? What if you'll be fired if you don't participate in something that you know Christ would disapprove of? Well, here's what makes the difference. Here's how you can endure that. If you know your God. That's what made the difference to the Apostle Paul. He said that he counted in the midst of all of his life of suffering, he counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he said. And he endured terrible suffering for being a Christian, but at root, what got him through that is that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone can get in on this, even Antiochus-like people, right? He's cut from the same cloth we are the same heart condition we have. And the Apostle Paul's proof of this, he was a persecutor of Christians. He hated them. He was part of an Antiochus-like persecution against the first Christians. But then he came to know Jesus. And here's how he put it in 1 Timothy 1. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So Paul, as he was this Antiochus-like persecutor of God's people, said that there was grace and love and faith overflowing for me. And then he said this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
As the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's an example. He's like, if God can save me, who was set against God's people, he can save anybody. You don't have me beat, he's saying. So no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've stiff-armed God, it doesn't matter. There is grace and mercy that can overflow for you from God. And this is what leads us to want to know God and to continue to know him even through suffering. And so if you have not yet known your God, your maker, he invites you to do that today, to receive the grace and mercy that overflows to you through Jesus who died and rose for you. So you turn from your sins, you trust in him, and you begin following him, and you find his grace in him. And this relationship with God is what anchors us in any storm of suffering. And so let's press on to know God. Now, in the midst of hardship, when we're not in hardship, seek to know him, seek to encourage one another to know him, know him through his word, communing with him in prayer. Finally, final lesson, let's teach others to hold fast and know him. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame. So the wise So in the midst of this hardship that was happening among the Jewish people, there were some that this angel called the wise among the people, and those ones would make others understand. They're instructing others. They're helping others hold fast and persevere. They're teaching others to know God. The wise are giving one another hope. If we look ahead to chapter 12, which we'll look at more next week, but the wise are mentioned again. It says this, "...and those who are wise..." shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Speaking about the resurrection, but notice what it calls the wise there. It's those who turn many to righteousness. So the wise are those who know their God and who make it their ambition to help others know Him, to help others hold fast, to help other believers stay steadfast in knowing the Lord, and to turn others to righteousness, to call others who don't know God, to find refuge in knowing him. So in other words, they're seeking to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition. So Christians see history as a story. We're part of it. And we want to be on the right side of history, right? That's language that's thrown around today. And that's a great statement. And so we find out what the right side of history is. It's the side of history that aligns with Jesus because he's going to return and make all things new and raise his people to be with him forever. And so the arc of history is moving in the direction of his return. And so now we seek to know him and we have the privilege of knowing him and we help others know him. And no matter what kind of hardship comes, we're prepared. We knew it was going to come and here it is and we can endure it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking all of this before it happened to Daniel. This gives us great confidence in you. It gives us assurance that you are in control of history and moving it along according to your wise purposes. And we thank you that the direction in which you're moving history, though it includes such suffering, is the direction of resurrection. And so we thank you for this hope that we have. We thank you that you are the one who works in us 
to cause us to know you and to trust you through Jesus and to hold fast. And so our confidence is in you. And so we pray even now that the grace and truth that we've heard today would strengthen us deep in our hearts to lead us to know you more in this coming afternoon and tomorrow and Thursday and every day beyond so that whenever hardship comes, whatever it comes, we'd be able to hold fast and be the wise who know you and seek to make others know you as well. Pray this in Jesus' name.